Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2. It was some three plus years ago that we were in this text, and I want to come back to it. Some of you were not with us at that, at that time. For others of you, some of this may be a bit of review, but every time I go to the Christmas story, I find that it is an infinite reservoir of divine revelation, and it's like diving for buried treasure. Tre- treasure. Every time you dive down, you seem to come up with even more priceless spiritual jewels. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me read you the text and then we will examine it. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed for their own country by another way. I'm drawn once again to this story of the wise men, the Magi, who were supernaturally summoned to Bethlehem to worship the Christ child. And when I look at this text, I am forced to ask a few questions, as I'm sure you are. One of the questions would be, well, who are these guys, these wise men? And why did they come so far? Why were they summoned from so far away rather than God summoning people locally, especially the local aristocracy? And what was this star that appeared, then disappeared, then reappeared again? And why could only the Magi see the star? And not everybody else in Jerusalem, including Herod and the chief priests and scribes. And why is it that the Magi rejoice exceedingly with great joy, as the text says, when the star reappeared and stood over the place where the child was? What was the significance of their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh? And what does all of this reveal about the infant Jesus What does this reveal about God? And of course, does any of this have any practical relevance for us some 2,000 years later? Well, by God's grace, I believe we will learn the answers to these questions in my discourse this morning, which I've entitled, The Magi's Supernatural Summons. And in our careful examination of the text, we are going to discover three Very fascinating truths as we witness, number one, sovereign grace impelling. Number two, sinful men imploring. And number three, scornful men impairing. And as the Spirit of God illumines our hearts, we will be humbled by 
the undeniable parallels that we see in this text with our own lives. Now, first, let me give you a bit of context. There are three principal characters in this story. The first, of course, being Herod. Secondly, we see the chief priests and scribes. And then thirdly, the Magi. So let's talk about these characters for a moment. Herod was the Roman appointed king of the Jews. He was an Edomite, really not even a Jew, and the Jews despised him. Like all ungodly, wicked rulers throughout history, Herod was a very gifted orator. He was a charming, charismatic type of man, very, very talented. And both Herod and his father and Antipater were characterized by being sly, by being very shrewd politicians that could manipulate the people and also very ambitious. The historian Josephus tells us that Herod was capable, crafty and cruel. As you study Herod's life, it's amazing to see how he was able to turn defeat into victory and Rome admired him. They put him in to rule this area. He was a great builder. He was famous for honoring the Emperor Augustus by building famous towers. He was also a sports enthusiast. He would preside over the games. And of course, like most of the world rulers throughout history, he was a notorious womanizer. He was a slave to his lust, a very immoral man. He had ten wives, and his most famous wife was Mary Amney I, a Jewess. And, of course, he would marry a Jew to somehow legitimize his right to reign over the Jews, which they would typically do in those days. But also, as you study the life of Herod, you will discover that he was an insanely jealous man. And he was very cruel. He was paranoid of any threats. He distrusted almost everyone. And, of course, he knew that the Jews hated him. History records numerous accounts of murders and assassinations and tortures and executions of anyone that he considered a threat. You might say that he was the Saddam Hussein of his day. In fact, we know that he killed his wife, Mary Amney, as well as her mother, Alexandra, and Mary Amney's two sons. In fact, five days before his death, which was approximately 4 A.D., he had another son killed. And the Emperor Augustus said of Herod, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Moreover, history records that he commanded that all of the noble families of Jerusalem be gathered up and killed as soon as he died because he knew that no one would mourn for him. And he wanted the people to mourn for someone. Now, although evidently this was not carried out, it exposes the diabolical wickedness of this fiendish egomaniac. Well, this is the ruler that God allowed Satan to put in place at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of his son, an insanely jealous, demonically controlled butcher, a man that was willing to murder all of the little boys up to age two in the region of Bethlehem in order to preserve his throne. Now, like all wicked rulers, Herod had the religious leaders as his allies to help control the people. They were called the chief priests and scribes. Let's talk about them for a moment. The chief priests were from the priestly line of Aaron, most of them were what what was called the Sadducees, very liberal group, as opposed to the Pharisees that were very legalistic. And the chief priests had considerable political and religious muscle. The high priest was typically an office that was given by the king as an act of political appointment. Sometimes these men would even purchase that office. And if the ruler didn't like them, then they would remove them and put in somebody else that could be their puppet. They presided over the Sanhedrin, which was 72 Jewish leaders that would be tantamount to our Senate and kind of Supreme Court combined together. There were other categories of priests that had different functions. Most of them were Pharisees. 
And together they formed a priestly aristocracy loosely labeled the chief priests. Bottom line, these were very corrupt politicians disguised as great and noble men of God. (laughs) Now, the scribes were both Sadducees as well as Pharisees, and they were the scholars. They were the lawyers of the day. They knew the Old Testament law, and they were highly skilled at twisting the law for personal and political gain. Sound familiar? And, of course, these were Herod's consultants. Now, what about the Magi? Were they really Oriental kings? That's what the carol says, right? We three kings of Orient are. Were they really kings? One Bible scholar, a man named Vincent, says, and I quote, Many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular beliefs and Christian art. They were said to be kings and three in number. They were said to be representatives of the three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He goes on to say, and therefore one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. Their names are given as Caspar, Balthasar, and Melchior. And their three skulls, amazingly enough, are said to have been found. They were found in the 12th century by Bishop Reinald of Cologne. And today they are on exhibit in a priceless casket in a great cathedral in Europe, end quote. Amazing. What's even more fascinating is to think that somehow Bishop Reinald was able to recognize and identify these three skulls as after 1,200 years. Well, frankly, we know very little about these wise men from Scripture, but we can piece together some fascinating historical pieces of evidence from the Bible that gives us an idea of who they were, especially as we look at Daniel, the book of Daniel. We see the Magi were discussed there, as well as other historians, for example, Herodotus. In verse 2, we see in Matthew's gospel, we see that they're called wise men or Magi. Now, the term Magi is an untranslatable word in the original language. And it's merely a name for a certain tribe of people. It's best translated Magi, and they were really the priestly line of people from among the ancient Medes. These men were very skilled with astronomy, the science, as well as astrology, the superstition. And they would blend these two crafts together back in that day as people do today. You recall, um, many people will talk about their sign, like their zodiac or whatever it might be. People will say, what's your sign? By the way, that was a practice that was condemned by God, a practice that presumes to somehow define one's personality makeup and offer great insight into the future and that type of thing. By the way, that was the sin of divination in the Old Testament where we read about diviners and, and soothsayers, which were nothing more than fortune tellers, and we see that they were an abomination to God. And unfortunately, this type of stuff is even practiced in many ostensibly evangelical churches today. They're called prophets, and God calls them liars and false prophets. But these men were occultists, basically, in that day. They were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery. So the word magi was eventually corrupted through history, and it is now considered the word magic from which we get the word magician, which is a synonym for a sorcerer. So these men were the priestly line of the descendants from a tribe of people associated with the ancient Medes, and according to Herodotus, the ancient historian, the Magi were a hereditary priestly tribe. And that would be like the Levites of Israel that were set aside for the 12 tribes or from the 12 tribes of Israel for priestly duties. So the Medes were set apart or the Medes set apart the Magi. Now, by way of context, I also want you to remember that in In history, we have seen four major world empires. We first will recall the Babylonian Empire on the North Arabian Gulf, the Fertile Crescent region 
east of Israel between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, we've seen it today. We know it as Iraq. And then there was later the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a conglomerate empire that overtook Babylon, and that was basically Iran, which, as you can tell, has a history. Those groups of people have had a history of hating each other. Then later on, Alexander the Great, Greek, uh, the Great came from Greece and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Romans came, and so on. So the Medes, again now, keep in mind, they're a very ancient people and their origins can be traced all the way back to Abraham when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, for example, in Genesis 12. So they were a nomadic people in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, historically, the Magi were politically powerful in the Babylonian Empire, in the Medo-Persian Empire, even in the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire when Christ was born. These Magi rose to power through their occultic, astrological abilities, their sorcery, their divination. People were terrified of them through their astronomy and so on. And they became advisors of the royalty of the East, and thus they were called at times the wise men. So, these occultic, Many of them demonic sorcerers were extremely powerful in ancient empires all the way up to the birth of Christ. And if we were to go into the Old Testament, for example, into Jeremiah chapter 39, we read in verse 3 and verse 13 the name Nergal Sarezer, which was the Rab Mag, which meant the chief of the Magi, and they were in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They were the official advisors to the kings. We read about that, for example, in the book of Esther, chapter 1 and verse 13. Now, Satan, of course, is always trying to thwart the purposes of God. And so he would have wanted the Magi to be right there with Nebuchadnezzar as he prepared to conquer Judah, as he did. And you might recall that there was a young 15-year-old boy that had dealings with the Magi, and his name was Daniel. He was kidnapped from the royal family in Judah, along with three of his friends, and was deported to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian culture. And he was required to assist with all of the new Jewish prisoners in exile. And we know as we read the Bible in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel rose to be a statesman in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And we can read in Daniel 2, verse 27, about magicians that were there that were the Magi. And in chapter 4, verse 7, we read how that they were unable to interpret the king's dream. You will remember that story. And then in chapter 5, and verse 11, Daniel comes along and he interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar made him master over the Magi. And he pleaded for them in chapter 2, verse 24. He's saying, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. And so literally Daniel helped save their life. Daniel undoubtedly taught them about Jehovah God and the coming Messiah and all of the Old Testament prophecy. And I'm sure many of these men came to place their faith in the true God of Israel. And certainly many of the other godly saints that were left in the diaspora, the dispersion, were able to speak of the God of the Bible, the true God, in those days to those people. Now, stay with me. The Magi were so powerful that no Persian was ever allowed to become king unless two things happened. Number one, they had to master the scientific and religious practice and disciplines of the Magi which would have been astronomy and math, agriculture, uh, natural history, and so on. But secondly, guess what? They had to be approved by the Magi. Nobody could be crowned king unless the Magi said they could be king. All of the judicial offices as well as the kingly offices were ultimately controlled by the Magi. 
In fact, the wisdom of the Magi was called the law of the Medes and the Persians. We read about that in Isaiah 1, 19 and Daniel chapter 6. And one of the things they specialized in was dream interpretation. By the way, you remember in Acts 7, Moses was described as one who was raised up in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Well, the same was true in the East. People would be raised up according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. So bottom line, the Magi were the kingmakers and... 600 years before King Jesus would arrive on the scene, before he was born, our sovereign God was orchestrating the events of history and setting the stage for the King of Kings to be born. And he did that by working through a young 15-year-old boy by the name of Daniel. Now, to the context of Matthew 2. Rome, at this time of Jesus' birth, was scared of the Eastern Empire. Europe was under their control, the Roman Empire, but the Eastern Empire across the Mediterranean Sea, across the the vast Arabian Desert, loomed this great and powerful Parthian Empire, the land of the Medes and the Persians as well as the land of Babylon, an equally evil empire as Rome, and Rome worried about them. They were violent enemies. They fought in 63 B.C., 55 B.C., and 40 B.C., and where did they fight? They always fought along the coast of the Mediterranean in the land of Israel. Israel was really the no-man's land between two great powers, And the Romans despised and feared these great sorcerers and astrologers known as the Magi. In fact, Philo of Rome, which was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, said, and I quote, They are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures. Now, friends, at the time of Christ's birth, There was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistoni, and it was composed totally of the Magi. And their duty primarily was to make kings. And at that time, their king was a real loser. His name was Phraates IV. He had been deposed, and now they're looking for a new king for their eastern empire, And it was well known that they ultimately wanted to conquer Rome. Now, folks, can you begin to see how God is orchestrating history for his purposes? With all this context, imagine the scene now that Matthew describes. You've got an insanely jealous puppet king that the people despise. And suddenly he discovers that the Persian kingmakers have arrived. Now, some would say that he was on camels, but history would record in other places that perhaps he arrived or they arrived not on camels, but on great Persian steeds, as they often would, with horses, with a large entourage of soldiers, far more than just three of them. We don't know their exact number. Some have indicated that they may have had as many as a thousand mounted Persian troops with them when they came into Jerusalem with their pointed sorcery hats and their flowing robes and the great pomp and ceremony of the Magi coming in to Jerusalem. And suddenly they ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You beginning to get, are you beginning to get the scene? Now Herod is thinking, star blazing forth? Oh my goodness. Because, you see, to them, falling stars and comets were always an omen that predicts that a king is about to be deposed. And so kings would live in constant fear of this. And frankly, as I read it, knowing the context, I see the Lord's humor in the whole passage. Because it's an understatement in verse 3 when Herod the king heard it, it says that he was troubled the term in the original language means he, he quaked. It, it's, it's the word trouble means to, to quake, to shake, to stir up, to throw something into confusion. You get the, the, the idea of his knees knocking together and his voice quivering. And all of Jerusalem with him were afraid because 
They didn't know what was going on here. Are the Persians going to attack? And what makes it even more interesting is we know historically that most all of Herod's troops were out of town at that time on a mission, leaving them very vulnerable. So what do wicked men do when they're threatened? Do they bow before a holy God, confess their sin and ask for mercy? No, they scheme against a holy God and shake their fist in his face and they consult with the kingdom of darkness and the consultants that they turned to were the chief priests and scribes. And we pick that up in verses four through eight. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And they go on to quote Micah 5.2. In verse 4, when it says they began to inquire, the grammar tells us that this is a constant asking. In other words, their number one priority was to do all that they could to find out where this baby was, this new king. Now, folks, let's go back to the text itself. Matthew's historical narrative with all of this background. And let's look, first of all, at how God's sovereign grace was impelling these magi to come to him. <clears throat> You know, it is always fascinating to see the reach of God's sovereign arm and to see how in his infinite mercy he reached all the way into the heart of the Persian kingmakers, drawing them across the deserts from what would be modern day Iran, somewhere in that region, all the way to Jerusalem. We read that in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold. The term literally means, wow, look at this. Can you believe this? Behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. You see, as I think about it, some 600 years before Jesus was born, the sovereign grace of God reached into the hearts of the magi at Nebuchadnezzar's court through Daniel the prophet. And he began to pre prepare those men, and many of them undoubtedly prepared their progeny down through the years. And now suddenly, some 600 years later, having been prepared with a message of hope that Messiah would someday come, that Emmanuel would come, God with us, that the glorious presence of God would once again be seen in the world, that a light would shine out of Judah with all of this going on. Suddenly they see the glorious blazing forth of God. And they knew right where to go. They undoubtedly remembered the prophet's words in Numbers 24, 17, that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And notice what God did to impel them. In other words, to set their hearts into motion to come and worship the king. In verse 2, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. In Greek, the term austere, it means a blazing forth, a shining forth. We saw this star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, what's amazing to me here is that the saving arm of God, God's amazing grace, reaches all the way into the heart of a pagan land and ignites this blazing glow of what I believe to be the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of his divine glory in this light, signaling to these kingmakers that it's time to go to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, as the prophets have said, and worship the king because he has arrived. I'm always amazed to observe the links to which God will go to save those who believe. It's a fascinating thing. Think about it personally for a moment. Like the Magi of the Medo-Persian Empire, some of you were utterly and hopelessly lost in some kingdom of darkness, and yet the arm of divine grace broke through all of the barriers of sin, broke through all of the strongholds of idolatry and deception, and somehow reached down and snatched you from the clutches of sin and Satan and death. 
revealed Himself to you in some marvelous way by the power of His Spirit. Isn't it a wonderful thought to reflect on that? To think how God has gone to such great lengths to save us. To think how His tender providence sought us out. To think how far His omnipotent arm would reach to save us from some distant land of sin. What a glorious truth this is when we reflect upon it. To think that regardless how lost a sinner might be, regardless how remote the wilderness of sin in which they live, regardless the thickness of the walls of deception and unbelief, God is able by His grace to reach in and to save us. That is a marvelous truth, my friends. How sovereign grace impels sinners to come to the light of the gospel. And how humbling it is to think that according to Jesus' words in John 6.44, no one can even come to me unless the Father, what? Unless the Father draws him. You might recall that the term draw in the original language means to irresistibly compel. To take possession of something. Literally the idea of dragging something. It, It connotes resistance. And to think that each one of us, when we were called by our Father was drug, if you will, into the presence of His glory where He saved us. To think that each one of us who call Jesus as Lord were drawn by this invisible love of our Heavenly Father whose sovereign grace invited us to Himself. And now these kingmakers have come. By the way, when they came, Jesus was somewhere between about three months and two years old. Verse 16 there tells us that uh, uh, Herod ascertained from the Magi the child's age, and so that's why he would ultimately kill all of the children two years and under. By the way, this is very different than the typical scenarios that you see in nativity scenes where you have all of the shepherds and you know three Magi there together. The Magi came long after the shepherds, and there were far more than just three of them. But now the kingmakers saw something supernatural. They saw his star in the east. Now, what was this? Well, everybody knows if you look at Christmas cards, what it was. It's a star like you see up in the sky, right? Everybody knows that. Well, I think not. You ever tried to get in your car and follow a star? Worse yet, get on a horse and try to follow a star. And what's fascinating is Herod and the others had not seen it. Verse 7, they had to ask the Magi where it appeared. Where did it shine forth, he asks. Verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. In the original language, the word appeared means to flash or to to shine forth uh, a bright light. It's it's a term that would be used of lightning. So he's saying, where did this lightning happen? Where did the shining forth appear? And the answer, of course, was in Bethlehem. And then later in verse 9, he, it's described, the star is, is blazing forth and they saw it in the east and it reappears and, and leads them directly over to the house where young Jesus was. Now, that couldn't have been a star as we think of a star. So what was it? How would the Magi know what to do when they saw it and where to go? Well, I believe the answer to this can be discovered in two ways. First of all, the Greek meaning of the word star and other biblical accounts. First of all, as I said earlier, the Greek term aster that we would translate star means a brilliant blazing forth of light, a shining forth of light. And also the grammar, when it says his star, indicates that this is not just any old blazing forth. This is one that is possessive of someone. It is His, capital H, star. It is God's blazing forth. And beloved, I believe, and I can't be dogmatic with this, but I believe that there's ample evidence in Scripture to support this, that this star was certainly the sign of the Son of Man that will someday appear in the sky once again, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 24. When all of the lights of heaven are turned out and he appears again in power and great glory. I believe that this was the blazing forth of the Shekinah glory of God. As I mentioned earlier in Numbers twenty-four seventeen, it speaks of a star. 
the Hebrew term koshav, it means the same thing as oster. It's a blazing forth. It says that a blazing forth shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A blazing forth is going to come. A king with a scepter denoting rule will rise from Israel. All of that a reference to Messiah. You might also remember that throughout Scripture, whenever God, who is immaterial, materialized himself, he did so in in the glorious, brilliant, ineffable, resplendent light of his Shekinah, that brilliant blazing forth, when he reduced his attributes to visible life, when he wanted to demonstrate his presence to man. And I believe that this is the star that led the Magi, this ineffable, dazzling light, the light of his presence to the Christ child. We see this in the Old Testament, as we've discussed before. We saw it blazing forth in the burning bush with Moses. We see it again on the mountain when Moses wanted to see the glory of God. It was the star that led the children of Israel, or I should say the brilliant light that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. It was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the brilliant shining that hovered between the cherubim over the mercy seat that stood above the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in both the tabernacle as well as later on the temple. It appeared earlier, we know, in the account to the shepherds when they saw, remember, the glory of the Lord that shone around them. And then the angelic messenger announced the birth of the Savior, the light of this world, the King of glory. And so I believe that God's sovereign grace now impels these, these kingmakers to come and to worship the King of Kings by sending to them the sign of the Son of Man. The very sign that the Lord Jesus describes that will be His sign when the luminaries of heaven are turned out in Matthew 24 at His second coming. And suddenly the sign of His second coming this brilliant light of His glory will be seen by everyone. And it's interesting to me that it was visible only to those whom the Lord had chosen to save. It's always been that way. It's visible only to those who acknowledges the depths of their sin and the brokenness and of, of their heart over their, over their own iniquities and how they have violated the law of God. And it's revealed to those who in humility will bow before God and say, oh, God, have mercy on me. In fact, you may recall. In Exodus 14, remember when the children of Israel were fleeing from the Egyptians and Pharaoh turned turned loose his charioteers to chase them down and they came to the Red Sea and the children of Israel were terrified that these men would come and chop them to pieces And Moses in that great text says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. And he talks about how the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then it's interesting in Exodus 14, verse 19, it says that the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel. And by the way, the context here is the the great glorious um, Shekinah was leading them. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. In other words, it was a brilliant light for God's people. And it was utter darkness for those who refused to worship him, namely the Egyptians. And this dramatic rescue is a picture of salvation and how God reveals his glory to those who he has determined to save, those who will believe and worship him. And by the same token, he will conceal his glory from those whose hearts are hardened against him. Now, it's interesting that we see not only sovereign grace impelling, but secondly, sinful men imploring. In verse 2, they say, where is he born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
Now, I find it interesting that they did not respond to the light of his grace with indifference or with passivity like so many people will do, especially very wealthy, educated, influential people, dignitaries and politicians. And it's interesting to see that in the spectrum of sovereign saving grace, where we know, according to 1 Corinthians 1, that there's not many mighty and not many noble. And by the way, we, we saw that, did we not, with the shepherds? He came first to the shepherds, and that's, you might say, kind of the majority of the church. That's where I would fit, not in the mighty, not in the noble. And then secondly, he comes to the erudite, powerful magi. But it's interesting how there is a spectrum of divine grace here. He comes to everyone, but primarily those who are humble and broken of heart. And many times those who are kind of the lowest on the social economic ladder. By the way, that's a real picture, is it not, of how the last will become first and the first shall be last. But notice how the Magi respond. They did not say, well, how interesting. <laughs> look at this. Look at this beautiful light, this incredible light. Uh, that must have been the light that Daniel was talking about that they saw in the days of the Old Testament. I think I'll ponder this light. I think I'll reflect upon this revelation that was sent to me. And friends, nor did they say, well, yes, I, I've heard of this Jewish Messiah and how he would someday come. But, you know, that's that's really another religion of, an, of another people, of another culture that really has no part with me. Nor did they say, well, perhaps I should respond to this sign. But quite frankly, <laughs> the journey is too far. The, the risks are too great. Um, the reward is too small. I, I'm, I'm just comfortable in my own spiritual state, and I think I'll just let this one slip. Friends, those are the words of a fool. That's not how they responded. But rather, as we look at their lives, we see that by God's grace, they recognized their sin, causing them to seek a Savior. Thus, they were sinful men imploring. They were pleading with God, obviously, to know more of His grace and as we look at them going across the desert to worship the Christ child, we can see that somehow in their heart they were saying that there is nothing that is more important than being forgiven. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I think of the words of our Lord later on in Mark 8, verse 35, where he said, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, they understood that principle and they sacrificed everything to go and pay homage to the king. They brought their very best to the king. The very best they had to offer as I think about that, what a, what a contrast to many worshipers today that begrudgingly give the very least they can give, the very least they have to offer, whether it be financially or with their time. I was even thinking of dress. You know, it's interesting. We will adorn ourselves in our very best attire for weddings or for funerals in order to pay respect to the people. And certainly we will do so if we are asked to go into the White House to meet with the president. But when I come to church to worship the Lord of glory, who has rescued me from the pit by his infinite mercy, I will only pay him homage with my most casual attire. And then I will proudly defend my nonchalant informality with proud platitudes of how cool God is and how He doesn't care what's on the outside, only on the inside, and so on. But friends, I would caution you with such a low view of God. This was certainly not their attitude. 
It says that they fell down on their faces and they worshipped him. And we know that they paid homage to the king, including the very best that they had to give. Obviously, their hearts are overflowing with gratitude. Notice that they brought gold, which was the most precious metal, a symbol of of nobility and royalty. They brought frankincense, which was an extremely expensive incense with a wonderful odor. It was, by the way, stored in a special chamber in the temple, and it would be sprinkled on various offerings, especially the grain offerings, symbolizing the passionate desire of the people to offer a sacrifice that was a sweet aroma to God, that would be acceptable to God. They also brought myrrh, which was a very costly perfume. By the way, that was mixed with wine as an anesthetic and given to or offered to Christ on the cross. And it was also at times mixed with other spices to be used to prepare a body as it was for the Lord in his burial. Oh, would that we would all render such homage to the Savior rather than so often the undignified and even irreverent manner that has become so popular. Well, contrast these sinful men imploring with the scornful men impairing. Isn't it interesting that Herod and the religious elite immediately began to scheme to thwart the purposes of God? Because that was a threat to their power base. Herod responds in anger and he responds in fear. How dare anyone challenge my authority? Thus he commissioned the Magi to go to Bethlehem in verse 8. Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Obviously that was a very disingenuous request betraying once again Herod's self-centered cruelty. As Satan's ape, Herod's plan from the start was to thwart the purposes of God rather than humbly submit to him. What if Herod had understood Psalm 112 and verse 1 where it says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And in verse 7, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. That was not his heart. Herod refused to humble himself before the truth. And even later on, the Jewish people despised the Lord, resented him, saying in Luke 19, 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. So like all people who are hardened in their heart against the Lord, they shake their puny little fist in God's face, the mark of a fool. But what a contrast to the Magi. Notice later in verse 9, this blazing forth appears again. And in verse 10, they saw the star and when they did, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, for whatever reason, the Shekinah presence of God disappeared and then it came back. There was a time there where they had to walk by faith, not by sight. Many times we have been there ourselves. And what a joy it is to suddenly see clearly God show himself powerful on our behalf, displaying his presence in our life. And so they once again see the light of divine grace as God draws these men to worship the King. So seeing the glory of God, they naturally expressed inexpressible joy. May I remind you as we close this morning that that which was once shrouded in His mysterious Shekinah, now comes and dwells among man as a tiny babe in a manger. As Jesus would later say in John 8:12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall walk in the light of life. So the Magi follow the light of life that pierced the darkness. And it says that they fell down and they worshipped him. May I ask you to note, it does not say that they fell down and worshipped Mary. Which I'm sure remains a bone in the throat of the Roman Catholics who worship her. But they came and fell down and worshipped him. My friends, throughout redemptive history, God has progressively 
progressively revealed his character. He did so in creation through his Shekinah, through the Lord Jesus, certainly through the testimony of his grace revealed in his word in the New Testament. And someday he will reveal his glory once again when he comes again the second time in power and great glory. And the question is, what is your response to this gift of grace? Dear friend, he has revealed himself to you today, those of you who have heard what the word has said. And we know that if you confess him as Lord, the word of God tells us in Jude 24 that someday you will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. But if you refuse, you will stand in the presence of his glory. All right. But rather than being blameless with great joy, you will stand guilty with great terror. For it is a terrible thing to stand condemned before a holy God. I'd like to summarize these marvelous truths with a poem. What love is this that seeks to save a sinner lost in sin? What God goes forth to save a man who has no thought of him? What mercy draws a wicked heart that hates the law of God and loves to wear the phony masks of spiritual facade? What grace would reach into the dark of Satan's kingdom night? What God would condescend to man to exchange for him his life? What love pursues rebellious foes that mock his judgment sure and spurn a Savior's plea to help and sacrifice so pure? Tis Jesus, yea, the Son of God, the Savior, meek and mild, the Lord of all who left His throne and came to us a child. Tis Jesus who persisted in the quest to save our souls, the faithful shepherd of the flock ever gathering to His fold. For this may thankful hearts proclaim the precious gospel news. As sheep once lost, we've now been found never more to lose. O faithful prophet, priest, and king, your love yet reaches still until the triumph of your grace this earth with glory fills. Let's pray together. Father, how we rejoice in these infinite truths and how we pray that you will cause them to bear much fruit in each of our hearts especially those that know nothing of the Savior that we love and adore. May today be the day that they see the light of Your presence in Your Word by the quickening power of Your Spirit. Lord, bring overwhelming grief to their heart, knowing the sin that condemns them. And likewise, bring to them the miracle of the new birth as they understand the grace that forgives them. I ask all of this in Jesus' precious name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.